MCU.html Reassembled is brought to you by the Cage Club Network for all things movies, media, TV, comics, music, and more. Check out the Cage Club Network at cageclub.me. That's cageclub.me. everybody, I'm Nico. And I'm Kevo. And this is MCU.html, and by goodness, we are in the final stretch. We are in the long journey home. Or are we far from it? Or are we arachnid people on vacation in Europe? I think we're that one today. Well, regardless, it has been such a strange journey. You know, if you had told me that the first movie after the... Avengers climactic endgame was going to be Spider-Man right after Avengers Assemble. I probably would have slapped you for being stupid, but I think that slap has to reverberate through time and hit me in the face. So many things that are coming post-endgame now, they're complete shocks. If you had told us back then that the X-Men might return, if you had told us back then that we were going to be getting Thor for more Thor, any number of recent revelations about the Marvel Cinematic universe thanks to SDCC and frankly even things that have just been happening over the last few years it's it's shocking and frankly this movie did not disappoint on having its own twists and turns and reveals as we closed out the Infinity Saga. I don't want to talk too much about the SDCC news this episode because we definitely have a closeout episode and we're going to eventually return to MCU.html but it is important to note that we went into Endgame with with one notion of what was coming next. We knew there were other sequels and we knew there were things contracted, but when we started Endgame, the only thing we knew that was still coming was Spider-Man. Now here we are on the other side of it. We know more Thor. We know Cap and the Winter Soldier. We know Loki and all of these different things. And yet now Spider-Man is nowhere on the schedule. So this is really interesting. This is the last canonical appearance of Tom Holland as Peter Parker on paper right now. And you know, it's alarming when you frame it that way because my precious little Tommy Holly and I don't want to see him go anywhere. We know that he has said repeatedly that he will play Spider-Man until he can't walk anymore, which is, you know, a little foreboding to say. Watch yourself there, Tom. I'm for it. I would love to see a adult Spider-Man sort of grow over the next however many years into being the new Tony Stark in his own way, not in the way that everyone's trying to force him to be at 16 in this film. And I want to point out that I think that without Spider-Man Homecoming and Spider-Man Far From Home and Spider-Man loses his V-card after the prom, I don't think that the next generation of Marvel movies could exist. Iron Man and Spider-Man's shared spotlight in Homecoming created the ability for Wanda to appear in Doctor Strange and the Multiverse of Madness, which 
I guess now's as good a time as any to talk about it. This was not the introduction of the multiverse. Oh, it burns my chaps. It really does. I wish it didn't. Uh, it didn't upon watching the film again, when I know that that's not what the story is going to be, I can enjoy it a little bit better because it's it's fun to watch the con play out. But because it was part of the marketing campaign for the film and they really hyped up that it was as a result of Endgame that Mysterio was able to come through and we were pushing in this direction and the ways that it could have tied into Spider-Man into the Spider-Verse, I was just like so prepared for this to be it and the fact that it wasn't it bugged me it still bugs me a little bit but it's wearing off this movie had so much in it because hey we might as well talk about it up front here as well it also had the return of jk simmons as j jonah jameson revealing that peter parker is spider-man that's what it what a what a thing to throw in as a mid-credits scene. A lot of people tend to not wait around for those things, more than they probably should, and this almost feels like a punishment for that, because if you didn't see that sequence, or the one that came at the very end of the credits either, like, they were vital to understanding what's going to happen next, and even this film itself. I kind of feel, though, if you're somebody who goes to Marvel movies and you don't wait for the post credit scene, you might be missing out on something. A lot of theaters use turning on the lights as a way to know if more is coming, and I think it would be silly at this point, where only maybe two or three films lack a tag to walk out. The art of the tag to keep people watching and to keep people watching the credit sequence is such a great way to keep focus on the performers and the creators and make sure everybody gets their due. But I would be hard pressed to find somebody that knows anything about the Marvel Cinematic Universe and isn't going to stay until the lights come on. I also wonder if putting these major pivotal moments in the tags and keeping these secrets even throughout the film until the very end was also a response to the way that this film was produced a little bit against Marvel's will where it went. Well, then I guess there's no better time to break into the behind the scenes than now. So why don't you give me the BTS on SMH from F F H S M F F H BTS M F F M F H. The thing about Spider-Man Far From Home that made it difficult for Marvel is that its existence had been far from secret for a very long time. As early as June of 2016, Sony Pictures chairman Tom Rothman was saying how Sony and Marvel Studios were committed to continuing the franchise after Homecoming, with Kevin Feige additionally commenting they discussed following the Harry Potter format with each film being a school year. In October of 2016, Tom Holland said discussions had already begun for the sequel, including which villain would be featured. It was in December of 2016 after the successful release of the first Homecoming trailer that Sony slated the sequel for July 5th of 2019, way ahead of when the first movie even came out. This was to the chagrin of Marvel, who had planned on killing off Spider-Man at the end of Infinity War and not resurrecting him until Endgame, which put them in an incredibly difficult position. Unfortunately, as we've discussed a few times on the show, Sony sort of has a lot of creative control over the Spider-Man property being its 
proper owners currently. And so they can pretty much put a sequel wherever they want. And, you know, I wonder if that is part of why they wanted to keep so many secrets in the movie and have there be these enormous twists and play the movie out the way that they did. They had so little control over the audience knowing that one of the biggest characters to die in Infinity War literally has to come back because their sequel is going to come out two months after the next movie, you know? And to that, I kind of have to reflect back on the fact that we all knew there was going to be a Black Panther sequel when he got dusted, and we knew that Captain Marvel was yet to come with very likely a Captain Marvel sequel not far off in the distance. Like, it, unless Captain Marvel bombed, there was very little reason to believe that she wouldn't have a sequel. We knew there was going to be a future of the Marvel Cinematic Universe. The question was just, what form was it going to take? Now, the emotional impact of Spider-Man's death is so much of the motivation for what Tony Stark does throughout Endgame, so... It's really unfortunate that that was taken from them, but I feel like the people at Sony had to have something up their sleeve. And this whole movie was about misdirect, whether it was the multiverse or Mysterio or even that you kind of assume anything from the trailer might be in the film. Yeah, we've mentioned before, I think there's a ton of footage in a lot of the early trailers of Peter getting ready for his trip to go to Europe that was nowhere in the movie and instead is going to end up as a home video feature, a short called Peter's to-do list. A lot of this movie is about, no pun intended, mystery and misdirection. Even the cast list was up until about two months before the movie came out, some amount of a mystery. Michael Keaton was originally reported as being in this movie reprising his role of Adrian Toomes, and it wasn't until, like, this past May that John Watts was like, oh, no, he's not actually in it. Like, him and Liz, Laura Harrier from the first Spider-Man movie were supposed to return, and then all of a sudden, it's like, oh, no, 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 they're not in it at all. I don't even know where they would have gone in this film as it stands, to be honest, so I don't know how that report came about if it was false or what decision got you know i have to assume because we've read about how so little of the plot of endgame was available to the creators of spider-man at the time of homecoming i wonder if they had plans for stories that had to be cut due to the snap blip and I definitely think it's very clear from the somewhat limited way that the blip plays into the overall plot of the film. John Watts had compared the post-blip stuff to Flight of the Navigator in terms of disappearing and coming back and everyone moved on without you and, and time passing without you. But like, it's barely ever mentioned or even thought of in the entire film, which is... You know, actually, ultimately fine. I, I've said before, I think it's a large coincidence to buy that all of Peter's regular clique was blipped together, uh, especially the character of Betty Brant, I think would have been better served not being snapped and instead being an adult who could work at the Daily Bugle. That had been my suggestion. I think that it's very convenient that this cast microcosmically gets to move on together. And that's kind of the spirit of comics in a lot of ways. Oh, look how convenient. Petey didn't lose any of his buddies. Oh, good for Pete. But in some ways, yeah, suspension of disbelief. We are in a very modern kind of movie age where these things should be advancing a little bit better. I do think it would have been more interesting to break up Betty. I love the chances they're taking with Ned not being Harry and MJ not really being Mary Jane. But I don't love the safe way they're playing it with a number of featured characters. Now, as for the creative team behind the film, there's not really a ton to report because it's mostly people returning from the first Spider-Man film. 
The cinematographer is a dude named Matthew J. Lloyd, and it's actually pretty cool. He's done some work on the MCU before this. He was the director of photography for season one of Daredevil and The Defenders, and was the director of photography, additional photography for Captain Marvel, and for the Atlanta unit of Thor Ragnarok, and director of photography for 2017's Power Rangers. So, pretty cool work. And as we've talked about, we love when they promote from within. It's really still unfortunate that what Ryan Coogler called the franchise out on when he agreed to take Black Panther, that it's the same group of guys doing everything over and over again, and I do mean guys in the most gendered sense. It's nice that it's somebody who didn't already direct a film. It's nice that it's somebody that didn't already write a film. Yeah, exactly. Moving up through the ranks, at least. Uh, John Watts has done nothing since Spider-Man Homecoming. That's, uh, sure. I mean, you know, this is great work. I was just very surprised when I looked up to update my notes and was like, oh, interesting. I discovered that he did some sort of YouTube short in his youth, like, back in the early aughts, called Clay Wright's which was a, I almost choked on the word, a satire of gay rights about a person who comes out as Clay. I watched it. I wasn't as offended as I thought I would be, but it definitely, I don't know. Look it up yourself. Let us know what you think. It was definitely interesting. Michael Giacchino, nothing new to report there. You know, he's always working. He's always doing Pixar stuff. I'm most interested in this episode in the screenwriters. Last Spider-Man movie, there were like 12 different dudes that were responsible for writing the movie. I'm only barely over-exaggerating. This movie, there are only two credited screenwriters, the partnership of Chris McKenna and Eric Summers. Something that's significant about these guys who did work on Spider-Man Homecoming, and I mentioned some of their credits there, including the fact that they also worked on Ant-Man and the Wasp. They wrote the screenplay for Jumanji Welcome to the Jungle, but they're also really big community and for eric summers happy endings people which is a sitcom that we have mentioned many times that we are super big fans of chris mckenna wrote like 10 episodes of happy endings from season one all the way through to co-writing the series finale with dan Harmon, whereas eric summers only wrote one episode none of their combined 11 episodes were directed by a russo brother though so the writers of spider-man homecoming are veterans of community much like the directors of avengers endgame and yet they don't have overlap it's just wild how much of the mcu is influenced by people who have to do with that show eric summers however also wrote two episodes of and was a producer of the happy endings follow-up sitcom marry me which no one i'm sure has ever heard of and would be impossible for you to find so good luck blah 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 stuffy old white people that make movies let's talk about the film itself So we open on Nick Fury and Maria Hill driving through a desert, except let's just get it right out there in the open right now. It is not Nick Fury or Maria Hill driving through a desert. So unfortunately, that means Maria Hill has had no lines in either of the last two films she's been in, despite Colby Smulders appearing. Good point. Good point. I have to imagine... Based on that glaring side-eye that she gives Thunderbolt Ross at the funeral, that that one at least had to be the genuine Maria Hill. And I'm pretty sure I read that Kobe Smulders actually didn't know about this reveal, which I find very frustrating on her behalf as an actor. Especially because the second time I watched Spider-Man Far From Home, I tried to imagine Nick Fury, Sam Jackson playing Nick Fury 
as Ben Mendelsohn doing a Nick Fury impression, and it kind of works. A lot of Nick Fury felt very weird and almost silly and out of character in this movie. So him being Talos in the end, it does kind of fit and does make the movie come together a little bit better. Unfortunately, it does rob us of an appearance, an enormous appearance of both Fury and Maria Hill, though. And I have to wonder what the decision there was. Maybe this was a great way to get those characters in in a way that doesn't necessarily fuck things up. Maybe it's set up for secret warriors and secret invasion. Who knows? But for my money, it didn't hurt the film. And I'm glad that we got that shot of Jake Gyllenhaal saying you don't want any part of this that was used in like 50 different commercials out of the way very early in the film. I appreciate when trailers don't use too much footage from too late in the film. But then we get like a smash cut into Whitney Houston, I Will Always Love You, and it was really jarring. I appreciated the opening sequence. It really tracks that a lot of John Watts's early work was for The Onion, because this whole student council morning announcements video sequence to help introduce the audience to the post-snap world. I thought it was funny, it was cute, it was clever, but the tribute was a little, like, I thought someone made a mistake or something. And considering this is like a magnet school, I'm not saying I was expecting, you know, art, but that tribute was specifically highly pathetic for a bunch of high school students who are at a gifted high school. That is something that I find happens a lot. The underestimation of children so that the under production of adults doesn't seem terrible kind of gets to me especially when you're dealing with a bunch of like we kept saying in endgame a bunch of regular super geniuses just hanging out right plus like the use of comic sans i i, I don't even know what to do with that i also appreciated this specifically highlighting for us the fact that it's been eight months it's funny both amy pascal and john watts a while before the movie came out had both said that this was going to take place pretty much immediately after endgame so the fact that there is such an enormous gap instead was a real surprise but you know i think that actually makes more sense give the character a little bit more room to breathe you know well and what's funny is other than the line that determines that it's been about eight months this could really be a summer trip to get everybody reacclimated for the school year that was determined by producers to be a little too on top of coming back from the snap like we keep saying very little about this film seems to have been directly affected by the snap of endgame just by the major death of endgame Absolutely. Absolutely. One of the things that I really appreciated about this film was that in an effort to make sure that the film stayed young, it focused primarily on Peter from Peter's perspective, too. I found a shocking number of the scenes didn't involve Peter, but like in a very small way. Not like, oh, I was shocked by the great number of scenes that didn't involve Peter. I was shocked by the incredibly small number of scenes that didn't involve Peter. This was like Veronica Mars season one. And other than that, first scene that doesn't involve peter i think everything from here on out is pretty much non-stop tommy holly and he's adorable right out the gate obviously his pathetic pathetic little plan to tell mj that he likes her like he literally learned nothing from turning to dust and disappearing for five years just tell the girl you like that you like her. Why do you have this whole thing? Like, the necklace is cute, but, like, why are you waiting until Paris? Immediately, Agnes. Teenagers. Man. 
Although, I'd like to point out, the adults don't fare much better. I appreciate what you're saying about teenagers, but I find a lot of this movie is kind of repeated rom-com tropes over and over again, whether it's Happy and Aunt May, or it's the sequence that's going to take place on the plane, or getting hit in the head with a banana. There's so much about this film that feels cutesy kitty fun time. I think it's a smart move. The different movies of the different aspects of the Marvel Universe should appeal to different audiences. Spider-Man should skew younger. Spider-Man should be the Chachi to Iron Man's Fonzie. Although we don't talk about Scott Bayo. No, not at all. I definitely do want to highlight the fact that all of the comedy and the most of the human elements of this film definitely did work for me. And, you know, having already been a fan of Chris McKenna and Eric Summers' work, I'm really happy with all the work they did here. Right from the very beginning, when Ned makes the cover of saying Peter is going to collect tiny spoons in Europe, like what who who is that joke even for it's for people like me and nico that's who it's for and i really loved all of that it's mostly the superhero elements of this film that i felt were a little bit clunky at times and again feeding back into the whole multiverse thing it 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 didn't always come together for me that element of the plot but especially because at this point in the mcu i'm watching these for the characters more than i'm watching for each individual film and i think on the subject of doing the real world stuff well versus the superhero stuff well i feel like they blended them well too like at the airport when they open his bag for a bag check and they find the super suit it's just a spider-man costume hanging out on top of his bag and that kind of blended the superhero elements with the real world stuff pretty well for me Mm, absolutely i totally get that i love you bringing up that scene though because after the whole thing of peter's to-do list i hadn't been expecting a scene that i'd already seen in a foreign trailer to end up in the movie especially one where someone discovers his spider-man suit That's such a jarring gag to throw in here, especially with how much of the film is about Peter trying to keep his identity a secret while still in Europe, only to have all of that ruined in the end anyway. But before we get to Europe, we have a little bit more going on at home. There's the fundraiser scene with Aunt May and Spider-Man. Aunt May's weird little tale about how when she blipped back, she the people in her apartment thought she was a ghost or whatever. I, I, I don't know. I love Marissa Tomei, and this interpretation of Aunt May is really fun, but I don't know what's going on with Aunt May in this movie at times. The whole fling with Happy is weird and awkward. I feel like she's high half the time. I know that's a weird and bold statement to make, but a lot of her behavior is so off the wall. They're just prepping her to play Golden Old. I hope so. I really do. She's fun and everything, but, you know, when she says to Peter, I actually thought you were a little stiff. He's like, I thought that too. Like, oh, be nicer to my little Petey. And, you know, the romance between her and Happy is... So much of this movie is drowning in heterosexuality, and sorry, it's true. I'm, you know, so I don't know if it was like necessary, but they play off each other really well, so I'm not like mad about it, you know? I do. We also get the first 
instance of Nick Fury trying to get in touch with Peter and, you know, right from the beginning, you really get a sense of what John Watts was going for with this movie, which is after in Homecoming, Peter desperately insisting on being taken seriously and treated like an adult. Now all Peter wants to do is go backwards. He just wants to be a kid and not have to be the only remaining Avenger, basically. And no one is letting him. And he's learning that after insisting and demanding and finally being taken seriously as an adult, you can't go backwards now. I think it's an important connection to Avengers Endgame to remind us that the Avengers still need to exist. So the use of the term Avengers was really beneficial in this movie. The Avengers aren't done just because the Infinity Saga is. And then we see Peter being all sad at a giant Iron Man mural. And then we get a very short sequence of him packing, which is the only bit of the stuff from the trailers that we ended up getting in the final movie where Aunt May throws the banana at his face. And I'm just going to leave that one right where it is. Apparently, Peter Tingle came from the fact that the writers didn't want to be so on the nose about everything from the comics and they were like what's a twist that we can do on that but like it was funny in this one movie please 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 change the name back to spider sense after this like it's not a forever funny thing that's for sure it was really cool seeing the robot suit in its weird little nanotech containment thing i can see why he probably didn't want to pack that suit for sure and i think it's smart to transition this to the exciting science franchise give spider-man the science stuff he becomes a scientist anyway it's true And for as much as I was kind of harping on Aunt May, this is where she tells him that he should pack a suit, you know, just in case. And supportive superhero moms are a huge weakness for me. I love Melissa McCall from Teen Wolf. I love Joyce Summers from Buffy. It's it's really wonderful to see supportive parentals when it comes to someone who feels they have this higher responsibility. And so I love seeing that from this iteration of the character. And from there, we immediately move on and start toward our European journey. I want to point out right away that J.B. Smoove's character was only added to this movie because he was in an Audi commercial with Tom Holland, and the director loved it so much that he wanted to translate that character into the actual movie. And that is the magic of the MCU everywhere. Like, they get inspiration from the weirdest freaking places, and they are not sorry about it. And it's important to give the characters actors they play off of, as well as characters that are established. If this was all just about translating the comics directly to film, it'd be one thing. But these are about creating new iterations. And while there are a lot of ways that they really perfectly create new iterations and ideas and execute these amazing new concepts, as we've already mentioned, there are a lot of tropes that are just really clunky in this movie. Peter's switching seats gambit on the plane is just so obvious that it's not going to work out the way it was supposed to so at a certain point it just feels like it's eating up screen time it just made me uncomfortable and sad really however i do have to say mad props to martin Starr. this is probably my favorite role that he has ever had i think that he plays it so subtly and so well i really enjoy his character and there were some really awesome documentary titles on the tv screen on the plane when peter was scrolling through them the snap finding wakanda hunting hydra nova einstein rosenbridges with dr eric selvig and heart of iron the tony stark story which was only 114 minutes well you've got to assume that pepper wasn't okay with that one heart of iron she would never approve it so of course the low budget iron man documentary knockoff is going to have the shorter runtime. true so true so this part of the movie starts to feel like saved by the radioactive spider european style vacation and 
I'm not sure what to do with that. I just keep expecting people to come out and say we worship Screech. Oh man, I haven't watched that special in ages. Now I have to dust that one off. I see what you mean, though. You mean dust and diamond it off? Ah. I see what you mean, though. It is that way in which so much of the Spider-Man franchise is just a teen movie with some superhero stuff laid over it. But it isn't very long before the superhero stuff rears its head. Uh, About five minutes into Venice, the water starts acting a little funky. The preamble is a little, uh, it takes a while for things to heat up. Are you saying there's a hydro menace in the canals of Venice? Did you make that up right now? Sure did. I like it. So what do you make of the quote-unquote hydro sequence and Peter meeting Mysterio for the first time? I'm going to be honest. I wish I could find a way to say that the, uh, this should have been a 45-minute Disney Plus special, not an hour and 52-minute movie, because I really would, for, for the sake of how quickly Peter's like, oh, I think it might not be a bad idea to give you the thing mr stark left for me other than a lifetime of memories i think he might as well just be like you want it because he is kind of like here you go pal and i'm a little taken aback by how readily he gives it away to somebody he meets what three times i think he meets him three times so yes the first time mysterio appeared it was basically this but then you know the other million times he appeared he sucked so i don't have a real problem with the fact that he's a good guy in his first appearance i do think that he's able to fool shield tech into thinking he's from an alternate universe that they can't find any like there should be so much surveillance equipment and cctv footage that links beck to stark so unless he had plastic surgery or he's Mm. always wearing some kind i mean we live in an age where this would be really difficult especially with tony stark involved i honestly think the movie is the same episode of the spider-man web show this should have been (laughs) for like two hours it really is the same story repeats every 15 minutes there's kind of a meet cute that turns out to be an awkward humor moment spidey trusts the guy we know he shouldn't trust now we're starting to think maybe that's not the direction they're going nope it definitely is never mind over and over yeah it's why i feel like the villain of this movie for as much as i love love jake gyllenhaal's performance and the energy he brings to the character of mysterio like i would love to see him come back for multiple movies i think that would be fantastic but the exact plot and construction and let's take the introduction scene of spider-man to mysterio first and foremost you know the second time that i watched this film knowing you know it's all illusions and everything i'm watching these sequences a little more carefully and i'm i'm questioning how were they able to pull off some of these so well and make them look so good i guess you know i question whether or not that was taken into consideration when creating the scenes or if they were just making them look real because we are the audience and if you put too much thought into these things then like how many hours and how much work is going into this double blind hoax you know well and part of it for me is i find it hard to believe that with later on when we see how specific the illusions need to be and every single projector needs to be at the right angle and they need to be casting the right illusion and it needs to be programmed and filmed and rehearsed there's a few too many permitted variables early on that i'm gonna start calling pim juice 
how did Ant-Man keep shrinking and growing even though they had a limited amount of Pym particles? Well, he had a secret supply of Pym juice. I'm gonna have to say this is a Pym juice situation, but these are Pym projections. These are just Pym projections that never should have been projected in the first place. We should just call this stuff barf because that's the augmented reality system. It's just more barf. I know, I see the face you're making. You don't like that. So Peter teams up with Mysterio, sort of, and bonks his head on a bell a few times keeping a bell tower from crushing his classmates and wears a cute little mask to keep his identity. I'm looking forward to seeing if anyone's going to cosplay that version of Peter Parker and whether or not they'll be wet. I want somebody to mash that up with Quasimodo and give me Spidey Modo. Yeah, no, I keep seeing that too. Absolutely. Mysterio is triumphant. The origin that Flash reads off of his phone for Hydro, something about like a guy being zapped by a hydroelectric generator, that's actually from the comics, so that's really funny, and I love them being like, oh, believe everything you read on the internet. We see Flash be a dick to Peter because that's hilarious and not getting old anytime soon or anything like that. Phone call with Aunt May where she refers to Stephen Strange as Mr. Strange. That's cute. I love that. That's another example though. She like tries to force Happy on the phone and she's like, talk to Peter. If this is a fling, that's like way, way overstepping making the dude that you're just booty calling talk to your nephew on the phone while he's in Europe. They're like not that close. They're close and I love the things that they have together in this movie but like it's weird what's going on with you aunt may a lot of stuff written for laughs that wasn't necessarily meant to be taken a look at in this perspective which is also a lot of the next scene where nick fury uh fed up with peter ghosting him shows up in his hotel room you know the portion of him knocking net out with the tranquilizer dart like sure that's pretty nick fury but then like everyone coming into the room and stepping on his toes like at a certain point again it was played up for laughs i get that but it started to feel like nick fury sucks at espionage so it's one of the ways in which it's a relief that it's not nick fury the shield based sequences give mysterio a lot of charm and a lot of personality in a way that directly reflects tony i had been like oh i wonder if he's gonna be his universe's tony stark the equivalent thereof and no it turns out it was all a manipulation because he knew how to act like tony stark at the end of the day i actually find myself like desperate to just talk about everything after the mysterio reveal almost exclusively because i don't like being misled and i enjoy this movie a lot but i'm like yeah okay i do want to get to the part where spider-man knows what's going on i get that i really do the only thing i think there is to talk about in terms of the fake out is there is some amount of reasonability to people believing it peter even points to thor was a myth and now we study him in my physics class it's hard not to think that there is a multiverse when he knows that his heroes just went into the quantum realm to travel through time to save him and everyone else using these quantum singularities in magical gems to represent these like mystic concepts like soul and time like sure a multiverse almost feels like yes here we are we have confirmation and that's why people just immediately latch on to it and that's why we did too because we as the audience know there already is a multiverse in marvel but like 
it eats up half the movie is is part of the problem. And the other half of the movie is dedicated to Peter's real life, including the sequence where he almost, oh, I don't know, murders a classmate. That was a lot of fun. But once again, a situation where I feel like, wasn't that the whole reason they created the Accords? Like this moment that we're making incredible light of, isn't that the reason they created the Accords? Well, let's set the scene. Peter is given Edith, which is the AI glasses from Tony, standing for even dead, I'm the hero, which is adorable, voiced by someone, I can't remember what their job was, but it's some woman who has worked on the Marvel crew for some time, which, again, hiring from within, love it, very uh, very nice to see that they're taking care of their own. I love the moment where he says to her, he made you for me, and she just goes, no, like, that's great. And then shortly after that, he is shoved into a broom closet with a shield agent to be given a new costume, which, you know, that trope of creating a compromising situation, hilarious. And he's found by a classmate who we didn't talk about Brad yet, because frankly, Brad is kind of a blip for me. I really hope we don't see the character again after this movie. He is, in some ways, the only thing that is a lasting tie to the blip throughout this film. He's someone who was 11 when they were all snapped and is now their age and okay why do we need one character to represent that and he decides to take a picture of peter in a compromising situation to blackmail him to get an edge on mj and peter tries to use edith to neutralize this threat and i believe that is what you were referring to in terms of the accords protecting against that and yeah there really is a lot to unpack in that tony bequeathed Peter, these glasses, and the capabilities that they have. It's not wrong to question that in a lot of ways, for sure. And I mean, I'm not trying to be a dick about it either. I'm only saying that there are situations that this movie repeatedly presents as humorous that in other movies we were told to take very seriously. And I think playing both sides of it is a little tricky. It can be a hard thing to do. This is a random example, but my comic people might know what I'm talking about. A number of years ago, the X-Men did a crossover event called Battle of the Atom. On the other side of Battle of the Atom, after the event was over, they decided to do a miniseries called All New Dupe. All New Dupe told the story of a rather unusual member of the X-Men, Dupe, popular from a title called X-Force Ecstatics, and what he did during the Battle of the Atom. Ultimately, while a lot of it was very good-natured, generally ribbing what the landscape of comics had become, including comics by the writer Pete Milligan, it felt like they were getting an opportunity to lampoon the things fans didn't like about Battle of the Atom, but doing it so closely on the heels of Battle of the Atom, simply around an editor change, felt a little unfortunate. You can't tell me that a teenager using super technology to nearly murder a bus full of children is funny when just a few movies ago, Cap and Iron Man could never speak again over something similar. And I think the sequence is even part of what pushes Peter toward so easily giving up the glasses to Quentin Beck shortly in the film. But then Beck's plan sort of becomes the beneficiary of fortuitous circumstances that even he couldn't plan for. They know that Peter almost did this by accident, sure, but they didn't plan for him to do this by accident. And it's kind of a really enormous fuck up for Peter to have caused 
all on his own. I like a lot of things about the sequence. I don't think that Brad is in the right at any step of this whatsoever. Even if Peter was hooking up with some blonde chick, he didn't, you know, promise MJ his V card. They like each other. They're teenagers. And it's very weird of Brad to take a blackmail picture of someone and threaten to use it against them. Also, I was kind of disappointed that the blonde costume lady wasn't potentially Elena Beloba, knowing that we are going to see her soon, I believe, in the Black Widow film coming out next year. It would have been a cool precursor to that, but I also wouldn't want her to be like the costume lady. So, you know, I get that too. I think since Elena Belova winds up being a super evil, horrible nightmare spy, they probably didn't want to utilize her before they knew exactly how she was going to be used in these films. <laughs> And as always, the best laid plans of Spider-Men and women always wind up in the... That's not even a good joke, but this one ran long too, guys. Oh, they all run so long. But until we come back to spin a web of mystery and deceit and sexy sunglasses that are going to destroy the world, Kevo, where can everybody find you on the interwebs? You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Kevo Really, K-E-V-O-R-E-A-L-L-Y, or you can find me on the Facebook page for this show itself, Husbands Talking More or Less, at Official HTML. You can also find me producing super cool, super fun, super inclusive superhero comics over at KidRiotComics.com with Nico and our co-workers, Taryn and Tori. Nico, where can everyone find you? So, so, so. You guys can find me over on Nico Action on Instagram. That's N-I-C-O-A-C-T-I-O-N. You can find me making those awesome comics that Kevo is a part of over on KidRiotComics.com. And you can find me here on this network doing other shows like Now and Again, where we talk about pop music, or X's for Podcasts, where we talk about the X-Men comic book franchise. All right. Well, until it's time to thwip it up, we'll see you guys. See ya. See ya.